Hi guys, I'm so excited to be sharing this special episode with you to coincide with Black History Month. It was recorded live at the London Podcast Festival with esteemed author Dorothy Coombson and it was such a fun and rewarding experience. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as Dorothy and I did. So I'm Yolante Fawahinmi, a journalist advocate for innovation and storytelling and this is Black Prose, the podcast where black writers talk amongst themselves. So Dorothy is the queen of the big reveal. And when I say the big reveal, I mean she has a lot of thrillers and emotional thrillers that take her readers on a ride. And she also has sold over 2.5 million copies of her books in the UK alone, which is insane. And her books have been translated to over 30 languages. She's written 18 books. Well, technically, it's 19, yeah. yeah. There's a 19th book coming out in February next year. And she is the biggest black female writer of adult fiction. So can we give a round of applause for Dorothy? So I think the first place we should start is, when did you first feel like a writer? I wanted to be a writer from when I was like 13. So I always felt like a writer, you know, I don't ever. I know people who want to who are aspiring authors or who aren't published yet they always say oh I'm not a writer yet and I always tell them no if you write and you sit down you write regularly then you're a writer and you've got to own it and you've got to step into that space and be there so if you're wanting to write a book anybody who's listening who wants to write a book and who wants to be an author if you write, then tell yourself you're an author, you're a writer, you, you know, you are an actual writer. So for me, it's always been, because I, I, I wrote my first book when I was 13 and I used to um, write a chapter every night and then pass it around my school friends the next morning. And I mean, this book's set in America, never been to America. And it's about <laughs> this girl whose um, mum had left her and she had a really bad relationship with her dad. My parents were married forever. And I, you know, I, I had none of that. But I wrote this story about this girl and she had this relationship with this guy who'd left and it was kind of a bad relationship. And there was a new guy at the school who she was kind of falling in love with. None of that for me, you know, had no boyfriends or anything like that. So I just... I used to love dramas and watching TV and stuff. And so I, used, I became a writer. I started writing, trying to write my own books from that. And so I've always felt like a writer. I mean, I wasn't published for like 95 years or something, but um, I always have felt like a writer. And you've spoken about how your mum taught you how to read and write when you were younger. Yes. And you also spent a lot of time in libraries. Yes. And now we're looking at libraries now. People don't really use them. People people that people do use them. We're just constantly told that people don't use them. It's you know they're a really they're the heart of the community. Libraries are the heart of the community. And for people who've just had a baby, there's a place for you to go, and you don't have to pay. You just go there. They used to have like rhyme time and all those things, and. A lot of homeless people used to go to libraries when I was out, of, kind of out of work or freelancing. I used to go to my local library and sit there. I didn't talk to anybody, but it's a place for, you can be surrounded by other people and it doesn't cost you anything. And libraries have always been the center of the community. And, and that's why the government have had a campaign over several years to smash them because when you have a place where people can congregate without having to pay for it and they can, read i mean reading is is like the great leveler it is 
gives people such access to empowerment. You're empowered when you can read. And that's why they don't want people to congregate in places where it's free to read. Where I live, down in Brighton, the local library, they try to shut it down. And so they, they said no one used the library. And then they, people, we all protested. And then they put out a survey. And the survey showed that loads of people um, use the library. They just told us they didn't, you know. And yeah, so people do use libraries. It's just that there are so many of them being closed down. And it breaks my heart because, you know, I used to go to the library after school every day. And in one of my books um, that deals with homelessness, When I Was Invisible, one of the women main characters she becomes homeless for a period of time and she goes to the library because it's warm and she can go into one of the stacks and have a sleep and go and have a wash and and that people do that that's how people manage to survive and so yeah libraries the fact that libraries have been smashed and closed down and you know turned into all sorts of different things is really sad i think I agree. And I think sometimes as well, libraries have become almost a safe haven for people. Yes. And if those safe havens are removed from yep. different parts of the community, where do people go? Exactly. And, and when you don't go, you don't have physical places to meet, you end up online. And whilst online stuff is great, it's a really dangerous space for certain people. And, you know, because those people, certain people control the narrative and they control access to information. So the sort of like removal of, of uh, library spaces is really, really concerning for me. And you've spoken about writing at 13, writing a book. Where did that determination come from? Did that come from your upbringing? Because who at 13 is writing a novel and sending it around to their friends at school? Do <laughs> <laughs> like, you know what? It's really funny. I, I remember my mum, like I said, my mum, when I was, before I went to school, when I was in nursery, my mum taught me to read and write and she taught all of us all all of her children, so four of us, she taught all of us to read and write. And reading was a very important part of our life. You know, we used to go to the library and I mean, my dad had loads of books and he had this big dictionary that had no cover and things, but I used to always sit there reading through it because it was just words fascinated me. And my mum said to me one time about hanging around with my friends in the streets. And she said, you could write your own book. And I was like, oh, I'll do that. I love reading. I'll try writing a book. And I, I, so I did. Um, I don't know. I don't know where the determination came from, but it's, it's carried me through. Because, you know, I, I've, as I've said before, I was rejected by every single person in the Writers and Artists Yearbook when I used to send my... I had an idea for a book. And what was the idea? Huh? What was the idea? For the Cupid Effect. It was the uh, idea for the Cupid Effect. I went up to visit my friend who's a lecturer in Leeds, and we went out one night, and she's married, she'd been married for 20 odd years, and she was a lot older than me, and I was single, beautiful, and we went out on a night out, and all these guys were sending her drinks, literally sending her, buying drinks and sending them over to her, and she's going, what's going on here? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm, I'm here. <laughs> And then the next morning she was so hungover and I was like, good. <laughs> <laughs> and she said to me, that was your fault, you know, you, you made people, these men like me and buy me drinks. And I thought, oh, that'd be a great idea for a book. So I went home and I wrote the first three chapters of what became The Cupid Effect. And I sent it out. And at the time, what your, the advice was to write the first three chapters, send it 
off to publishers and agents or to agents first of all and you know all these offers are meant to flood in so I sent it off and everyone told me to get lost and I was like okay fine and I believed I believed in my story so I finished it and I thought okay I'll finish it and then I'll show them my brilliance so I sent it out again and they all told me to get lost again and I was uh, like <laughs> wow but you know what I, I carried on and so I um I sent it off to publishers I decided I was going to you know the agents weren't interested so the publishers will be interested because I was about on the verge of thinking that you know I need to give this up and then I got the postman rang the doorbell and I went down and got this envelope and I slung it onto the pile because I had a pile this high of of um, things from publishers for book reviews I used to write and I thought oh do you know what I've sent my book off to these people I'll I'd have a look and it was an offer for a two book deal. I was like, wow, you know what? This is, this is it. I've made it. So I rang up one of the agents who hadn't been horrible. I mean, some of the agent letters were proper horrible. What sort um, of things were they saying? If you can oh, share. <laughs> well, one of the things was, because it's called the Cupid effect and I had it with an A and it should be an E. And I got so slated by people going, you, you really need to sort out your grammar. You really sort I was like, Bye. and then other people just, this is so unbelievable. And it's, the writing is not there. And I was just like, you know, I can write. I can, I know I can write. So I, I, I rang up one of the agents who had said that I was trying too hard to be funny. And I spoke to her on the phone for a while and she kept laughing. And I said to her, see, I am funny. <laughs> <laughs> and so she said, do you want me to be your agent? And so I became, she became my agent for my first two books. But another agent who had been all right to me, I'd rung her up and said, I got this offer for a book, two book deal. And so she came, she said to come over and see her. So I went over to West London to meet her. And she had this agenda written out. And I was like, well, no, this isn't, you know, writing is all like, ooh, ooh. It's not uh, an agenda with all the things. And so we had this conversation. And some of the things she was saying to me, I was just like, my God, you know, she said that I should put clues into my book that the main character was black. And I was like, mm, okay, yeah, do you know what? I don't put clues into my life that I'm black, you know, I don't yeah, pick up the phone weird. and go, hello, I'm black. <laughs> <laughs> and she had ideas about how to do it. You know, she said there's one scene where they're, main characters trying on their different clothes and her friends going, well, we know what you're going to wear. You're going to wear a long sleeve top um, and she said in that scene her friend can say that would suit you with your coloring but not with what with my coloring and I was sat there going boy this is <laughs> this woman is not for me this she is not for me I have been rejected so many times and over the years you kind of think okay you get a book deal rejection ends and it doesn't you know if you want to be a writer you've got to understand that rejection is part of your life. You're going to get rejected at every single stage. So for the first two books, I had two books published. They didn't trouble anybody. They didn't trouble the bestseller charts or anything at that time. Um, and then I wanted to write a different type of book. And my agent wanted me to carry on, stay at the same publisher and carry on writing the type of books that I was writing, romantic comedies. And I was like, oh, no, I want to write something else. And I want to see if I can get more money as well, because I still had to work full time. So I, just, I decided to leave her. And all my friends, I tell me recently, they all thought I was crazy because, uh, you know, I tried so hard to get so long to get an agent. And suddenly like, oh, yeah, I'm off. I'm going to find <laughs> someone else. Um, so I found a new agent and I'd written My Best Friend's Girl, the first chunk of My Best Friend's Girl. 
and he sent it out. And again, loads of rejections and people saying things like, it felt like the reader's been manipulated or the story's not very emotional. It's not about the black experience, which I've heard so many times, you know, it's about a black woman, but it's not about the black experience. And I have no idea what that is still, you know, even so now. So they want you to write a story about the black experience if it's about a black character. Is that yeah. That's, which is quite weird. It's, it is weird, but it's not uncommon you uh, talk to any published black writer and they will have at some point have had this conversation where people will, will be going you need to teach us something about being black me and my sister we grew up together she's a year younger than me and we still have very different experience of the black experience so how am I supposed to write a book that is universal exactly. um so my best friend's girl rejected by all these people again even though I'd had two books published and Obviously, it went on to sell over a million and, you know, translated all these languages and done all this. It done so well. And um, I have to say, have an, as an aside, I have to say, I do hope people wake up in the morning and go, oh, I'd rejected Dorothy Coobson. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that at all. <laughs> But um, yeah, and, and but then, you know, you sometimes you'll write a book and you think it's the best book ever and, and the shops will just like, now we're not interested in this book. And again, so rejection is a part of your life and I've been rejected lows and you have to pick yourself up and then carry on. So determination from there is a lot of the time, you know, I have to confess a lot of the time when people tell me I can't do something, I'm like, you know what? actually I'm going to prove you wrong um, but you have to keep going you have to keep the de determination going you have to keep going if you want to get published especially nowadays when there are so many books published you have to keep going and believe in what you're doing from what I understand you have quite a lot of similarities or you've learned a lot from one of the characters in your first book Kerry and you've also spoken about how she t she was someone that always had advice for everyone else, but didn't really have advice for herself or couldn't take that advice for herself. Are you still that way now? And are there any more lessons that you still learn from Kerry? Kerry and the Cupid Effect is the book that got me published. So it's got a special place in my heart. But I learned something from all of my books. When I'm writing all my books, I start them. And I think I know something about a subject. And by the end of writing the book, I realized I knew nothing about it at all. And I am a changed person because I learn more. And you talk, I talk to people for my books, you know, the research. I don't ever put anybody's direct story in, but I talk to lots of different people and their stories are really affecting and then and they how they change and how they change them. It kind of changes me as, as well. So um, I do sometimes think about what Carrie will be doing now because she's like nearly 50, you know, <laughs> and because me and her are very similar. And yeah, I do think about what she'd be doing now if she did end up with the person that she might have ended up with in the book. I'm not going to spoil it for you, but all my books, I, I learned something different from them. You know, I learned from the Ice Cream Girls, I learned about domestic abuse and it's not that it's not just the physical stuff and the physical stuff wouldn't happen without the emotional stuff. And from the women we loved before, I learned a lot about how I see myself and how I look in the mirror and how the person looking back at me how I avoided that because of, you know, ideas that in my head about how I looked and my relation to beauty and stuff. And again, it really helped me. And I remember a few people emailed me after they'd read The Women Love Before and said, 
that they had body dysmorphia and they said you encapsulated in the story and with the note at the end how I feel about the fact that I, I can look in a mirror but not see myself. I can see something completely different. With When I was invisible, I learned a lot about homelessness and belonging and how, you, um, how trauma can change you, but also change you for the better, not necessarily for the bad. So lots of my books have teach me different things. So I'm always learning. And that's, that's, what the, that's one of the great things about being a writer. You always learn and you always see new things and you always experience new things because you're almost living that person's life. For Ice Cream Girls, it was adapted for TV, but you weren't very happy with, <laughs> with how yeah, it was adapted. Yeah, I see my face going, yeah, <laughs> we're going there. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting because a lot of authors aspire for their stuff to be adapted to screen and you got that but it didn't really go the way you intended for it to go. What would you say authors should be mindful of when they're going down that screen adaptation route? And also for context as well, could you explain what you didn't like about that adaptation? Yeah. Do you know what? It's, it's 10 years now. It's 10 years since it was adapted. So it's quite a long time ago. And I've just about calmed down. <laughs> <laughs> My head stops spinning and I don't go, <laughs> when it's mentioned. Do you know, it's looking back, I wasn't as involved with the adaptation as I could have been. It was it went from one company to another. It was it changed hands. The person who originally bought the story for the adaptation didn't get to work on it. So okay. they had a real love for the story and the people who bought it didn't have a, that love for it. They liked the idea of the story. And as I said, when I was writing Ice Cream Girls, I learned a lot about domestic abuse and violence and emotional abuse. And the people who were adapting it were very focused on the physical things. The stereotypes about abuse. Um, when I was writing Ice Cream Girls, I did a lot of talking to people about their stories and discovered like, you know, literally it could be any of us there, but for the grace of God go I. And I wanted to get that across in the book that these were two normal girls who had normal lives, who got sucked into this relationship with this bad person. And to the outside world, he was a good guy, but to them, he was awful. And the TV adaptation kind of just erased all that. And I know things change for television and you have to be able to find a way to make something visual. But they kind of like, they change the killer, they change the ending, they change the sort of the tenor of the story. So the white girl became this really awful girl, you know, this real stereotype of what a white girl is. The black girl became this shouty, aggressive black girl. It was every single stereotype that I had made sure wasn't in my books or any of my books because I know that people are, are wide and different, especially black women. I, I'm always very careful about how black women are portrayed because we are so often just portrayed in terrible ways, you know, as this stereotype of being aggressive and shouty, especially if we're dark skinned. Um, and I always make sure that my novels reflect the reality of who black women are. And all of that was just out the window for, um, for the TV adaptation, that's what broke my heart. I didn't actually care about them changing the ending. I did care about them changing the killer because, again, it fed into this awful stereotype. But um, the other changes they made, I wouldn't have cared so much if it hadn't 
just been against everything that my book was about and what my book had been trying to do. And a lot of people emailed me and said, you know, I'm glad to read that you weren't happy with it because I, I was thinking awful things about you, Dorothy, because, you know, <laughs> they, they kind of thought I was, yeah. I was up for that and I wasn't. And they kept it away from me. I, I had nothing to do with it at all until they emailed me um, just before production started and said, oh, such and such is this and such and such is this. And, and this character's called Rachel. And I was like, Who's, who the it's hell's Rachel. Rachel in my book? And then I, when I read the, what they'd sent me, the email, they explained what, how they'd changed the story. I said to my husband, I bet you they make the black girl shout and aggressive and make the white girl this awful stereotype of what a working class white person is and that they do this, this and this. And that's literally what they did. So that was why I was unhappy with it. And, um, but I didn't say anything at the time because, you know, I want people to come into it and make up their own minds. I, I don't want to sort of like go in there guns blazing and saying all this, this and this when people might like it. Um, and I sometimes wonder if I hadn't done all that research, I would probably watched it and thought it was, was quite good. Um, and the bits of it were good. Bits of it were interesting and emotional. But you know, as a result of it, I got to meet Nicholas Pinnock. He, was, he played Dr. Evan. Serena's husband, and he, we've become, we've become friendly, quite friendly. Um, see, I've got sat here going, yeah, me and Nicholas Pinnock, we're mates now. <laughs> and he's going to listen to us and go, yeah, really, Coombson. Um, but he obviously, he went on to option Tell Me Your Secret for the screen as well. So, you know, some good came out of it. Yeah. I want to talk a bit about 2020. So we all know that 2020 was a very difficult time for everyone. That's when George Floyd died and a lot of industries started to speak up, like publishing, music, journalism. And you were one of the people that spoke up about publishing, the publishing industry and how, I don't know what word to use, to toxic. It can be, it can be. And you spoke up about, especially when people started posting those black squares and you were like, oh, like what's all these black squares you guys are posting, but Meanwhile, behind the scenes, this is really what's going on. Can you talk to me about what was kind of bubbling inside of you when you decided to share your thoughts at that time? Well, what happened was that, you know, George Floyd was murdered and we all sat there and we saw watched it in real time and it was really shocking. It was a collective shock across everybody, across all sort of communities. We were all really horrified by what we'd been seeing. And someone said to me it's partly because we were all at home so we all saw it and it wasn't something you heard about later we actually physically saw it and then I saw you know because I follow a lot of publishing people and a lot of them came on my timeline and all these people sort of like posting oh this we've always looked after black authors and we always went and I'm like going what what and then the people who, who had been actively awful to me in the publishing world, they were posting and saying that. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and then one particular person, I'm not going to say it was, just who had been particularly awful, um, posted something about how they were always... Did, and I was just like, no. And then people behind the scenes, a lot of authors, we were emailing each other going, have you seen this nonsense? Have you seen this? And then it got to the point, I was just like, when that person posted, I was like, nah, I'm, I've had enough of this. I'm speaking up. I've, I am, 
I'm gonna, I was going to say a word, but I was going to say I'm aware that, that since we recorded, my mum might listen to it. But I was annoyed. So I wrote, I sat down and I wrote this letter. And my God, the first the first iteration of that letter, <laughs> it was just like, and you know what? And you know what? Um, so I had to, I rewrote it several times. And I sent it to a few black authors and I said, do you want to sign this? And a few of them did and a few of them didn't. And, you know, I, I got a reminder again that we are not all a monolith. We don't all agree. You know, one person said that she was worried about what her publishers would say, about upsetting them. Another one said that, that um, I was clearly going through some emotional or mental health problems so mm. they weren't going to sign my letter and I was like mate you don't have to, don't have to insult me no, it's not required just say no and then I, I sort of I published the, the letter because I was just annoyed really really annoyed and it really hurt as well because you know they got a, the publishing gets away with this having this reputation of being woke and really really liberal and really welcoming and it so isn't you know there's so many black authors um and authors of color and you know lgbtq authors who are just constantly told that their stories are important that they would rather have certain people who they feel comfortable with telling those stories. They don't want us to tell our stories in our way. And if they do, they want us to tone it down to, to make it palatable to a white audience, essentially. And I've never done that. I would never do that. And I couldn't envision a world where I would think it was okay to do that. I mean, people might not like my books and they might say this, this and this about them, but I never compromise who I am or what I believe in. And I never have my characters pandering to, to white people. And that's not in my characters. But that's what the industry is constantly asking people of, of black authors, authors of color, and other marginalized people. Um, and I, just, I was just so fed up. And you know, some of the people, I was just sat there going, one woman in particular, she had been awful to me, constantly shutting me out, ignoring me, ignoring my ideas. And whenever my, agent whenever we go to a different publisher or we go he says the first thing he says to them you've got to tell Dorothy everything okay there's it's not negotiable she needs to know everything because everything that's been done in my name I need to know what's been done in my name and this woman would go sit there going yes 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 and then she'd do what she wanted and then she'd send stuff out and I'd be like what what have you done you know people are going to think that's me who sent that out and it's not me and then you know around the time of George Floyd's murder she was like chatting all this stuff about how she was done this and this and this. And I was like, really, love? <laughs> really? It's only recently somebody mistook me for another black author. Oh, God. She had literally spoken to me 20 minutes earlier and told me how much she loved my books and this and this. And then another author comes in and she's like, oh, it's such a it's Dorothy. And, and the author, author's like, what? And she's looking at me and I'm sat there going, you see? <laughs> you see? So, it's, so, it's so annoying. It is so annoying. So it was 2023 and she couldn't distinguish between the two of us. We look nothing alike. That's the worst part of it. We look nothing alike. She's a good 10 years long. I mean, poor girl. She must have been proper upset. You know, <laughs> she's 10 years younger than me and she's like tall and beautiful. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm beautiful me. I am well. beautiful in, in my other way. But it's like, 
I was, I was laughing to my sister about it, saying, she was going, can you imagine if they swapped your names on the books because they thought you were the wrong person? No, it was disaster. I don't, well, <laughs> wouldn't surprise me if it happened, but it is, yeah. What do you think the publishing industry is actually afraid of? Because why do you think they want to tone down black stories or black ex- stories of black, the black experience? It is quite weird. I don't know if they're afraid of anything or it's just they don't like upsetting the status quo, you know. I mean, I have been really fortunate because most of the people I've worked with have been not accepting. Accepting sounds like I'm, I'm, I should be grateful or something, but they have just taken it as read that the cover's going to have a black person on it and that the main character's black and th- there's been no discussion for me at all. You know, my first, first publisher, they did say I should change my name because Dorothy's old fashioned and Coombson is diff complicated. And I was like, kind of married to my name. I'm not changing my name ever. And they just left, they backed off and, you know, and, and nothing else was said. But I know other authors have had this conversation about, you know, and they do have actually have books about black people that the main character the character on the front is white and I, that's weird to me I, I, yeah. I just couldn't countenance having one of my books just having a white character on the, um, the front cover despite what people might think publishing is a very old-fashioned industry it's very afraid to take risks and it's afraid to try new things somebody's got to go first and do um, take the risk do something different. Like when I wrote My Best Friend's Girl, it was one of the first books that just made people cry. And and after that, there was a whole slew of covers. The person who designed the cover, she did a fantastic job. And there were so many covers after that copying it because they see it someone's taken a risk, it's worked, and they go, right, we're going to do that as well. And then um, they wait for someone else to take that risk and to, and then everyone wants that, wants to do that again. So I, like I say, I don't think they're afraid of anything. I just think they're, they're not used to opening themselves up because, you know, a lot of the time I know other authors have heard, oh, we, we don't, we don't need you. We've got Dorothy Crimson or we've got Maria Blackman or we've got this, you know, we don't need somebody else to be writing yeah and that's what I love about the publishing industry now is there's so many of us now there's so many of us writing different books because I have been denigrated and ignored and people pretend I'm not there because I don't write literary books because black people are meant to write literary books and we're supposed to add to the weight of the world you know and people are supposed to teach people, particularly white people, things about about our world, about the black experience. And I've never done that. And so, you know, I don't go th- into long descriptions about stuff. I just make a statement and, you know what, if you don't understand it, go look it up. I'm not the dictionary. Um, I write a book where I've got flawed characters who do terrible things and who do brilliant things. And dark-skinned black women who are the love interest and they have four or five men after them, you know, and they do great and kooky things and there are different types of people. I've been ignored for that for, for a long time, but I hope that me constantly doing that has allowed other people to feel, oh yeah, I can do that as well and I can write those stories. And there are so many different people, particularly black writers and black female writers doing thrillers, romances, cozy crime it's great and it's it's great to be able to go to the bookshop and you don't have to go to the black section now you can if you want to but 
our books are in the main, main section. And that's fantastic. How's that not stopped you from giving up? Especially feeling ignored or feeling even this idea of having to be excellent as a black person. Like you can't be mediocre. Like you have to do everything 10 out of 10 or just forget about it. Mm. How has that not stopped you from just throwing in the towel? Oh, I'm really, I'm really annoying because I don't give up. Like I say, <laughs> if you tell me I can't do something, I'm like, okay, I'll show you. About that is my mentality a yeah. lot of the time. You don't do just things for yourself, you know. You do things for other people, and and I hope I have helped pave the way for other people to be able to, to do stuff, to write these books, and and you know you you got to think about that. Other people need to see that it's possible. It's not easy. It's really hard. And it's getting, it seems like it's getting harder. But, you know, if you can help other people to kind of reach that dream and reach that goal, then yes, I will do that. I will keep going, you know. And also, the amount of time over the years, black women have said to me, wow, thank you, Dorothy, because I read your book and I realized that black women can be the love interest. We can be the crazy woman. We're not just the, the femme fatale, you know, the antagonist. We're not just the aggressive, shouty person sitting in the corner who's the sidekick. There's a big scene in My Other Husband. There's two black women who are friends, um, Tina and um, Cleo. And they were like, well, which one of us is going to be the sidekick? Because I'm the main character. And I, I wrote that because, yeah, we're always the sidekick to the main character who's having the adventures and we're the sons on the, on the side. And black women have said to me over the years, I've read it for the first time. I read a book and I was like, I'm the main character. I'm not on the side. I'm not the horrible person who, you know, who is probably going to get killed off at some point, you know, in Star Trek when, the, when they land on the planet. It's like, if there's a black person, it's like, mate, see you then. <laughs> and, and that doesn't happen. And, and to have those emails and to have people say that, it's a really amazing feeling to sort of think, I've helped people to kind of feel seen. And so, yeah, I will keep going. Um, sometimes, I, I mean... I make it sound like it's all, it's all, yes, I'm going to keep forging forward. It's hard, you know. Sometimes I do say to my agent, God, I'm just, I've, I'm fed up of it. I'm, I've had enough. And why am I bothering? And should I keep bothering? And, you know, my husband will prop me up or my agent will prop me up or, you know, other people will prop me up and they'll go, no, you've, you've, you've got to keep going. So, yeah, sometimes it is, it is hard and sometimes you do want to stop. And I do stop sometimes, you know, I do sort of take a break and step away and sort of think about doing other things. But at the moment, I'm sort of wondering if I just want to give it all up and become a sewing person or integrate British sewing bee oh, or okay. go join Project Runway in America because I'm obsessed with that at the moment. Um, I probably won't because I'm terrible at sewing, but, you know, um, yeah, you do. sometimes I do want to give it all up. But I know I won't. But do you feel seen now? Do you know what? <laughs> I should say, yeah, shouldn't I? Yeah, yeah. You can no, be honest, if, if you don't. No, no, I do. I've, but seen by who? Because it's mm. seen by readers, yes. Um, seen by the industry, not not often, sometimes not. You know, I um, a few times people have said, oh, well, I love I love Dorothy Coopson's books and all that. And then they'll do a list of, of these books by black British women, writers. And I'll be like, so... I'm not on there. I don't exist. And I remember one post on Instagram, uh, they did 101 black writers. And I wasn't on there. And I was like, 
really? Black Afri Af of African descent. I'm like, how, how have you missed me? How, I'm, I'm here. So sometimes I'm, sometimes I'm not seen and I'm not there, but I can't force people to look at my book and go, or to go, yeah, have a look at Coombson. Yeah. Is there anyone's career that you would say you're jealous of? No, I think it's really important to um, to stay focused on what you do. Be aware of what other people do, but be focused on what you do. Because if you spend a lot of time worrying about what other people are doing, you are going to, you're going to work yourself into a corner. You're going to be trying to emulate them. And that is a waste of time. Your life is your life. You know, you live, there's nobody else who sees the world as I do right now. There's nobody else who can have my career and I can't have anybody else's career and I don't want anybody else's career. There's nobody I, I will say I'm jealous of, no, no. Maybe that, maybe that makes me weird, I think. Not necessarily. What about you? <laughs> oh, I'll say Elaine Welteroff. Okay. She's an American journalist. Well, she used to be the editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue. Mm. I think I like how she's carved out her own lane. Mm. She's doing her own thing, even though she was at Vogue for a few years, actually. She stepped away and decided to do her own thing and she's doing really well. Mm. Um, and I also like Lindsay Peoples as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I say those are two people I really admire. And I really like Angie Martinez as well. Yeah, those are the people that I say that I'm jealous of yes. their careers. Is there anyone you'd like to thank for your success? Oh, gosh, loads of people. You don't do it on your own. That's the thing, you know. I think it's really stupid to pretend you do. Um, at the back of my books, there's always... Uh, sort of like a credits list of the people who've worked on a book because you've got to understand it's not just you, you've written the book, but there's other people who market it, there's people who edit it, the people who proofread it and send it and get it put into book, ebook format. And so, you know, when people don't want to pay full price for a book or they think they should pay 99p for an ebook and ebooks shouldn't cost you're not paying for the format it's in. You're not paying, when you pay for a paper book, you're not paying for the paper. You're paying for every single person who's worked on that book. And it's, oh. I think it's important to, to make that clear that- I didn't know that. Yeah, you're paying for the, for the publisher to employ all those people and they pay for their electricity and pay for their transport and pay for everything. So that's what the price of a book is. It's not, you're not paying for the format. So. And audiobooks, audiobooks cost a lot to try to record. So there's lots of people I want to thank, you know, and everybody, even the people who have been awful to me, they, they are great because, you know, who was it the, the other day? Um, was it KK? Yeah, who said, you know, thank you for all the people who... They didn't believe in me. Yeah, didn't believe me. You thought you were putting out my fire and you were actually adding petrol to it. And it's so true, you know, they're the people who keep you going. Um, so I, I'm grateful to a lot of people. And also everybody who's bought a book and who's told someone else to buy my book or they've told other people about my book. So yeah, I'm grateful to a lot of people. So now I want to talk about your writing rituals. So we're going to talk about the actual craft of writing. So with your new book, Every Smile You Fake, it has six characters in it. And a lot of those characters' timelines overlap. Yeah. I want to know how do you actually go about writing character timelines and making sure you remain faithful to each character. Like, how do you do that? The timeline with this one was really hard. There's been two books that have nearly broken me with their timelines, and that, this was one of them. The other one was The Friend, which had 
five main characters and I had to do a timeline for each of them. So when they got married, when they got divorced, when they met their husbands, when they met their wow. friends and stuff. And, and the same with this one. This one was actually really complicated because I needed things to happen at a, a particular time. Mm -hmm. And also we had to factor in the pandemic as well, the lockdown and their ages and the children's ages and how they chat. Yeah, it's proper hard. So yeah, it's hard. <laughs> how I do it, various ways. One of the ways I have is in my office, there is a whiteboard and I have sticky notes and I write sticky notes. Each character has a different color. And so I write down what happens to them, different chapters or different scenes, and I put it all up. And so I can look and see who's got a lot more story than other people. And then I get a sketch pad, a big sketch pad, A2, and I draw grids on it, a grid. I do one for years, and then I do one for the timeline of the story. And so I do from the time the character's born, say 1970, to 2023. Wow. So it's then I and I and I go through and I go they started school then and they got married then and they went to college then and then they started their job then. So I can see an overview of what happens when and then I've got my other one which is 12 months or 18 months of the story and I write January, February, March, April for those two years and then I plot in each one in January, this happens, they go there and they go there in June or whatever. So yeah, I do that. And then obviously you have to factor in school holidays. So I have to go back through all the schools, different schools in different areas because in Brighton, the school holidays are different to the ones in Manchester, for example, or Leeds. So I have to go and factor in them. So when the schools break up, that's why the friend and you broke me because it was set around the school. So um, just plotting it out. But also you, what's helpful is the person who copy edits your book. So once you send it in, your editor reads it, they'll have suggested changes. You go back, you rewrite it, you send it to them again. They send it to a copy editor who then goes through and reads for sense, but they also do timelines as well. So they will check and come back to you and say to you, this happens, all happens in one day, and this all happens over six months, and you've written the dates wrong, so. It's a very intense process. It is a very intense process, especially when they come back and they go, well, it couldn't have happened because there wasn't a full moon that night, so oh. no one would have seen <laughs> that. <laughs> come on. <laughs> What would you say is your worst writing habit? Eating food in the middle of the night whilst I'm writing. Does that keep you going, like your fuel? No, I just like sugar. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I, I, I think my worst writing habit is actually, I just leave it to the last minute. I just, there's nothing that gets me going like a, like, I used to be a journalist as well. So nothing that gets me going like a deadline. So, you know, I'll be, ooh, love and love love oh yeah I'm writing a book for six months of the year and then it'd be like oh yeah my deadline's in like two months so I'm, <laughs> oh, I better get on with it hadn't I so then I start writing intensely and I am um, you know I, I start staying up late I used to um I used to write in bed a lot which was really bad for my back <laughs> you know as I'm finding out today it's bad for your back um and so my poor husband, he'd be trying to sleep with a TV beyond the light would be on from the corridor, a bit typing away. Um, 
And then now I've, I'm going to my office and obviously with the cost of living crisis, the, you should have seen me last uh, last winter trying to finish this Every Smile You Fake. I had my hat on, I had my jumper, I had my, my big um, throw on and I'm sat there with gloves on. <laughs> Well, with, with, you know, fingerless gloves on, typing in the middle of the night, crying because, like, I'm cold. <laughs> and I was like, I can't turn the heat on. Yeah. Um, so my, probably my best, my worst habit is staying up late. And But I'm old now. I can't do it. I can't, I can't stay <laughs> up that late anymore. You know, I can't do the, the working all night thing. So I've had to kind of force myself to, to do it during the day as much as possible. So what's your writing routine like now? Every book is different. Every book is because people say to me, "How do you?" How do, and I go, "I don't know. It just seems to get done." And at the end of it, it's like having a baby, isn't it? Apparently, you know, you how you forget the pain. So I get to the end of it, I was like, "Oh, I've got a baby. I've got a book." And oh, isn't it beautiful? And I've forgotten all the the labour pains and, and the awfulness. But um, with every smiley fake, I started doing my words before breakfast because I have to take medication. That's I have to take it. And then have an hour before I can eat. So I used to sit down at my computer and do a thousand words before I did anything else. And that actually got the book written. So that's probably my main thing change now. I just sit down and force myself to do it or book myself in time when I have to sit down and write. And it might be a load of nonsense, but it's written and I can go back and edit it. What's the editing process like? Do you enjoy that? I love editing. Yeah, I love I love editing. I love cutting things out. I overwrite a lot. So I will put in stuff that is never going to make it into the novel, but it's really good for how the character develops or how the story develops. And then I'll just slash it. You know, <laughs> I'll be writing it going, oh, this is the best thing I've ever written. Yeah, I'm winning a booker for this. And, do, 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 do. and then I'll, I'll read it back and I'll go, this isn't moving the story along. It's got to go. And it'll just, I don't have a problem with that. I know a lot of people really find it hard, but I just, I think with editing, what you've got to do is, and this is my advice to authors who especially ones who are just starting if you can put it to one side for a couple of weeks so you come to it fresh when you pick it up pick it up as a reader pick it up as you would if you've spent your seven eight ninety nine in the shop and bought it home and be as harsh on yourself as you would if you'd bought if you'd spent money on it so if it's something you think is ridiculous as a reader you need to cut it out or you need to rewrite it but when you're reading it, don't edit it as you go along. Just sit there and read it and make notes about what needs to change and then go back and do it because your story will be better for it. And for me, I would always rather, I was the person suggesting those changes than an editor coming and saying to me, oh yeah, can you change this and this? I know with the end of um, All My Lies Are True, which is the sequel to Our Scream Girls, me and the copy and so we came, went back and forth quite a few times because she wanted me to end it in a particular way and I was like no I can't do that because I don't want to spoil the ice cream girls um, and what often happens is people will say this doesn't work maybe you should do this and, uh, me being stubborn Dorothy I'll be like I'll find another way to because make it work. I'll, to make it work my way. So um, that's why I'm very good at editing. My editor says to me, she, I'm the best self-editor she's ever worked with because I will sit there and go, well, that's a sort of nonsense, isn't it, Coombson? I'll take it out. 
even if I love it, even if I love that scene, I will go, do you know what, it needs to go because it's not moving the story along or it's not helping. Well, but when it comes to your story ideas, how do you know idea is a bad idea and how do you just part ways of it with no like hard feelings? I do. Sometimes I have started writing a book and then I've realised it's just not the book to write. I know with the book that became That Girl From Nowhere, I started writing it after I wrote um, The Rose Petal Beach and it just wasn't flowing. It just wasn't authentic. It just didn't feel right. So I just let it go. And it, obviously I wrote it later. And I just, sometimes you have an idea and you, it just sits there and it's meant to be. With my ideas, I have an idea and I'll go through the what if process. So I'll go, um, for example, with every smiley fake, what if a woman goes back to her car one day and discovers there's a baby in the back seat? What if that baby was somebody she knew? And what if that woman who's had the baby has disappeared? And you keep saying, I keep saying what if and what if. And if it sounds plausible, each what if has a proper answer and another what if that comes after it, about five what ifs, I know I've got a good story idea. If it doesn't get to three or four what ifs, I just kind of think, okay, I'll, I'll park that for now. Something else will come along in life that will help me to kind of finish that story off. So, but I think with a lot of ideas and stuff and with the writing, you just, you can't cling on to it too much. You can't be too possessive of it because you'll just kill it. You just need, you need to kind of let it go a bit and let it breathe and, and let it breathe at another time, possibly. You just kind of just think, okay, I can write this another time. It's like when I'm cutting out with um, Women Love Before, I cut out 50,000 words. As well as say I had, I, I overwrite, there was so much of it. And the story wasn't, it was really big and unwieldy. And I thought I needed all these things in it. And then it turned out I didn't, you know, I cut out all that stuff and I could just, I summarized it in two or 3,000 words. So you just got to let your story breathe and you've got, sometimes you've just got to write it and then you've got to kind of come back to it and go, actually, I didn't need to write that, but I did need to write it to know that it didn't need to be in the story. Yeah. For someone who's been writing for a long time, how do you ensure that you're constantly working on your craft? Because I think sometimes when you're good at something, you just do it, but you don't do the stuff to that like, practice or mm. to edify that skill. That Do you do anything outside of writing books that, helps you develop your skill as a writer? Um, you know what, this living is, is a, you know, talking to people, eavesdropping, which I do a lot of, you know, listening to people talk, it's really interesting. But watching telly, you know, listening to podcasts, reading, reading is the best thing, you know, you, you get such a brilliant overview of the world and how people see the world and things that people do. Um, watching the news isn't great, hasn't been for a, f a while, has it? But you know, sometimes you'll see something in a plot of story. I know with um, the Rose Petal Beach came from what um, reading this article. This journalist read a story about this woman who people going up to her door, knocking on her door, and she was opening the door and saying, "I can't talk to you," and shutting the door. And it turned out she was the wife of a very famous businessman who had been accused of sexual assault. And he, when he was accused, said that it was actually, he'd had an affair. And this was before 
a lot of the Me Too stuff happened. And so she, he basically went to ground and then she left her to deal with it, with it, with all these people camped outside her house and having to deal with speaking to journalists and people who they knew kind of turning against them. And I remember th reading this article and thinking, God, imagine being that wife in that situation. You haven't done anything apart from marry this person who turns out to be trash. Um, so I, um, that's what I wrote the story about. My, um, the Red Petal Beach became a story about this woman who opens the door one day and the police rush in and arrest her husband. And then she finds out what he's been accused of and who's accused him and her whole life falls apart. Um, so yeah, so little news stories or stuff can really spark an idea. Do you have any insecurities when it comes to your writing? I have insecurities that I'm not going to finish in time. I'm not going to hit my deadline. I think that's it. No, I, you know, there's no point in doing something like writing if you're not going to be confident in it. And that's not, there's confident and there's arrogant. You know, when my editor says to me, that doesn't work or this doesn't ring true, I will go, how dare you? This is brilliant. And then I will go, actually, do you know what? I need to change it but I have confidence, I can tell a story, I can write dialogue, I can create characters. I might have a, a wobble about the title or the ending. Um, sometimes there's an ending there that is the right ending and then there's the ending that you know you, you want to have. I know a lot of my books, I know with um, the book that became That Day You Left, which was originally Flames of Love, I had written, because I don't write in order, I don't write in sequence, so I don't start at the beginning and then write the middle and then write the end. Sometimes I write the end and then I write the middle and you see you frowning there going, what? Yeah, because I'm, <laughs> I'm very logical. I have to start at the beginning or yeah. the story's not getting written. Yeah, see, a lot of people <laughs> are horrified when I say that. No, I will start wherever I need to start. So I'll start in the middle sometimes and sometimes I'll start at the end or beginning. That day you left, I wrote the end of it, of the story. And so I went back and I was right in the middle. Then I wrote the beginning and then I, and then I stitch it all together. And the reason why I do that is because I write whatever's in my head, whatever scenes in my head. And I, I, then I don't have to force myself to, to sit down and write something I don't want to work on. I don't get writer's block because... If something's not right working, I will just put at the end of it, write more, and then I'll go and write something else. I'll write another scene, and then I'll come back to it and I'll go, oh yeah, Coobson, so <laughs> you, you need to write more. What is it that you were meant to write? But, you know, it gets the story written. So with That Day You Left, I'd actually written most of the ending, wrote the middle, wrote the beginning, went back to stitch it all together. And they realised the ending wasn't going to work now with the story now that it was all told. And I was like, oh. oh gosh. So I rang up my editor and I said to her, so if this scenario happened this, would this happen? She went, no. I was like, okay, I'll talk to somebody else then. So I <laughs> rang my agent and said the same thing. He went, no. And I was like, oh. So you had to start the book again? No, no, I had to rewrite oh. the ending. No, okay. good, I'll start again. <laughs> no, I just had to rewrite the ending, okay. which was, I had to, and I had to unstitch all the stuff I'd put in. Rewriting is not a hard problem. You also like to have baby name books when you write. Yes, yeah, I have baby name books. What is the reason for that? And what else is in your writer's toolkit? Um, I have baby name books because they give you the meanings of the names. So a lot of the time, my main characters will have a name that is related to the theme of the 
of the book, you know. So, um, like Serena and Poppy, they were they were related to themes of the ice cream girls. And also, I know so many people. And what'll happen is if I start, if I give that person a name that I know, somebody I know, I'll end up writing that person into the into the book. So I don't want to do that, do I? <laughs> um, so, okay. and it's also just helpful to have names, name ideas there. Um, what else is in my tool book? Post-it notes for the wall and Sharpies, a wall for the sticky notes and stuff. Um, my big book, which I do my plotting and timelines on. Um, haagen ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> Bit of tunny, salted caramel. Okay, I like that. What would you say is the art of writing crime stories or emotional thrillers? What makes those stories good? You need good characters and you need a good plot. In literary novels, the plot isn't usually as important as the characters. But you know, with the crime thing, you've got to get you've got to get people on side. They might not like the person, but you've got to get them on side. You've got to have them rooting for them. Sometimes the people are rooting for. You know, somebody said to me her favourite character in the Ice Cream Girls was Marcus, and I was like, she goes, "Oh yeah, I loved it when he was awful to them." I was like, <laughs> "Okay, you think you've got issues, love?" <laughs> but um, you've got to you've got to be. The person's got to be believable. And I think we, got, we kind of forget that human beings are multifaceted. So a lot of the time, people who are bad, they have a good side to them. And so we get stuck, I think, sometimes in believing people are just one thing. So someone will do, somebody, somebody bad will do something good and we'll just focus on the good they've done. And so then we'll vote them into government and then we'll kind of, you know, we'll, we'll allow them to, to yeah. run up, ruin our lives. Um, and then people who are good, they'll do something bad. And that's what we kind of focus on that. We've got to remember that people are multifaceted. And so one of the best things to do, I think, when you're writing a character is to have them have flaws and weaknesses and things that they do are terrible. The other day I suddenly thought, about the end of The Woman We Loved Before, I was like, wow. So she really did that. And I was like, you know, I was really shocked at, at the character. Obviously, I made her do it, but, you know, <laughs> I, I was really shocked. Um, but because all the way through, that, that character's scene is quite good, but they did something and I was like, hmm. And um, being allowed to do that and explore that in books is one of the best things about it. And so you've got to get somebody on side. And that's why... At the beginning of most movies, you'll see somebody do something heroic, like save a cat or something, or, you know, because they want to get the audience on side. And that's what you do. You get the audience on side and they go off and do terrible things, but they're all, you're still kind of rooting for them. Yeah. And I love being able to do that with the, so, and I think that's really important in a crime book. For me, I can't, I mean, I, I spend a lot of time doing that when crime and glory things are on TV. I was like, is it gone? Is it over? <laughs> and you'd be like, nah, it's still going on. So I don't write too many graphic things in my, and even in things like Tell Me Your Secret, which is quite um, sinister, um, some awful things happen. There's very little that's actually played out on the screen. You kind of, you hear about it and you kind of, you read up to it, but you don't actually get to read the whole thing. I'm going to open up to people in the audience. If anyone has any questions or writing dilemmas that they would like to ask Dorothy. Um, I kind of wanted to ask about like your process when you research things and speak to people, because 
especially when like topics are quite sensitive and stuff like how you go about it whether like it's people you know or like reaching out to maybe people you don't know um yeah it, it can be a combination of those one of the things that i um do is i'll speak to organizations for example with that day you left there's a, a storyline about eating disorders and so i spoke to beat you know the eating disorders association and i asked them if they had anybody who would be interested in speaking to me completely anonymously i wouldn't have their names or anything about them i just wanted to get an idea of what it felt like to to experience this and to feel like that and they asked their members and a few people did want to speak to me so i sent them questions over and the people who wanted to they responded and they sent me the the list of answers anonymously so i didn't know who who was answering and i find that's a kind of a, a good way of getting an idea of a subject so i'm not writing about any particular person i just want to see what people feel about a certain a way about a subject and as i found with pretty much everything i've researched people from different completely different areas of life they all feel very similar things they all have similar experiences so even though like you know one could be really rich and live in a massive house um and other people can live in a small house and be very working class they still have the same experiences and emotions and so that's one way um reading forums public forums reading biographies are they going to be careful because some biographies are probably over over exaggerated but you can get the thread of it and you can get an idea of what people think and feel so i mean there is a lot of information out there with the police stuff for my later books from like brighton mermaid onwards i speak to a police advisor and he will read the book and then he'll tell me what i can and can't do and i like with every smile you fake there's a couple of things i was like graham you need to make this work. I need this for my plot. So he he found a way around because some of the stuff just wouldn't happen. So he found a way around it for me. Um so but I pay him and if you're speaking to somebody who it's their expert, you need to be able to be prepared to pay for them. And if you can't afford to pay for them, there is a lot of information on the internet that you can um you can find. So all the time is getting easier and easier too to find out from people information about from people um i was thinking for um more of your stories that surrounding like crime as we're like now in an era where there's loads of true crime and people are making podcasts about it and people think they're sleuths and stuff has that presented any challenges for you when you're thinking about any stories that you're writing that are around crime or mystery or things like that uh, not really, because I mean, I don't, I don't do the crime, um, true crime stuff at all. I'm not really. When I was doing my psychology degree back in 1875, I did. Um, I was fascinated, and I did do my dissertation on um, serial killers and mass murderers and the difference between them and the motivations and who becomes one and who becomes the other. So I was interested back then. I kind of lost interest. Um, only recently I started watching Holy Murders in a Building, which is hilarious, absolutely hilarious. And so my husband, oh, we were watching that, my husband's like that, we've got to start listening to true crime podcasts. And I'm like, you know what, I don't need any more of that in my life. Um, so it hasn't really, but I do 
yes, I know what you mean, because people read books now and they think, oh, yeah, that wouldn't happen. Or they would. There's so many things that happen that people wouldn't believe actually happen. And they go and, they, and they'll read my book and they'll go, that would never happen in real life. I was just exaggerated. I'll think I've toned down a lot of this stuff because people don't believe, won't believe what some of the stuff that I hear and read and, you know, you experience. I know with um, Tell Me Your Secret, a lot of people had an issue with Tell Me Your Secret. And when I was talking to Graham, the police advisor about it, I said, a lot of people have said that it, wasn't, it wouldn't happen. He said to me, it does happen. You just don't realise how, how often it does. I and mean, it's not really, really prevalent. But things like that do happen. And I'd kind of toned it down. As I said, you don't see any graphic stuff. But yeah, I think people... But it presents a problem more for the police than me because people are always trying to solve some sort of mystery that's not there, that um, that's not happening. So, thank you. What is your um, self care routine or self care practices as a writer? Um, do you know what? I didn't used to practice self care, and I wasn't as nice to myself as I should be, but. In recent years, um, trying to get more sleep and um, not being so hard on myself because, you know, there's nobody who's going to be harder on me than me. So when I've written something, if it's not up to scratch, I will basically tell myself off. And so I've stopped trying, I've tried to stop giving myself such a hard time and do the whole black excellence thing and, you know, having to black girl magic and stuff. And, you know, I'd like to be, I'd like to aim for being mediocre, you know, sometimes. I think that's a big self-care thing for a lot of black people because we're always thinking that we have to be 100% um, or 110%. And I keep aiming to not, have everything perfect before I do it. You know, I, it took me ages to launch my second podcast because I was like, oh, it's not perfect. It's not this. I've got to make sure I did this and this. And I was like, I need to stop that. I need to sort of step back from that. So giving myself a break is probably the best form of self-care I can, I can practice. You, know, you go, I'm only fallible. I don't have to be brilliant. I mean, I am brilliant naturally, obviously, but I don't have to be brilliant and hate aim for 120% all the time. It's not sustainable and it's, it's a fast track to burnout. And it's bad also to show the younger generation that they have to aspire to 120% before they can be seen as normal human beings. You know, we don't, we shouldn't always be putting pressure on ourselves to be brilliant. We should aspire to be mediocre, just like any other person, any other white person would be. Hello. Hello. Um, how do you keep your passion for writing? Because um, when you have a gift like what you have and you're writing and you have deadlines and you have to produce something, how do you keep that passion there without it just not becoming you writing because you have to produce something or you need to produce something? I think part of that is because, because I have to write. I can't not write. When I was... Um, getting rejected by everybody left, right and centre for the Cupid effect. I remember I was lying in bed and I was like going, God, universe, whoever's out there, I need a sign 
that I need to keep going. I need to keep trying to get published because I couldn't stop writing. I can't stop making up stories. I, I just do it all the time. You know, we have a scenario, somebody walk in the street and I'll have some sort of story, a backstory and where they're going and what they've done and who they're going to all the time in my head. I can't stop writing. So I was like, you know, do I need to stop getting published, trying to stop getting published? And, and that's when the doorbell went and the postman had this offer of a two big that was my sign that I shouldn't stop trying to get published and I haven't ever lost my passion for writing and storytelling it's something I do and I love coming up with all the scenarios but by the same token writing has always been a job and I think a lot of the time writers do themselves a disservice by making out that it's some big mysterious thing and you know that it's and it is, it's the, it's the best job in the world and I wouldn't do anything else. I love it and I'm very fortunate to be able to do it, but it's also my job and it's something I have to do and I have to get up. We all have to get up and go to our jobs. And so, you know, I used to say, if I worked in Sainsbury's, I couldn't wake up in the morning and go, I can't scan today, I've got scanner's block. I've got to, <laughs> I've got to get up. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to get up and I've got to get up and do the job. I've got to, you know, I've got to pay my mortgage. And for me, I've I've spent a lot of my time being financially responsible for myself. You know, I didn't get married until 13 years ago. So I've spent a lot of time financially responsible for myself. So I have to get up and pay the bills and do something that pays the bills and you know, still now I'm still 50% financially responsible for my life, so I have to do my job. I have to do my job, and I have to. That's why I have to produce a book a year. I can't not produce a book a year. I can't not do it because I won't get paid. Um, so I'm very lucky and very fortunate because I get paid for doing something I love, and I I I haven't lost my passion for writing, just like I haven't lost my passion for reading. I, you know, I love reading. I like sewing now, and I like gardening as well. But I I um, haven't lost my passion for writing and I hope I never do when it comes to writing different genres do you ever feel like in the past that um publishers or like agents ever tried to like pigeonhole you into writing one particular genre um yeah that, that was what I was saying before they they kind of expected me to write literary books and I, I've just never been that that person I've always been you know giving my commercial giving my popular fiction giving my fantastic sex scene, you know, you sit there on the beach reading. I love all those books. I've always read those books, you know. Literary books are great, but they've never been my my jam or the thing I want to do. And Could you explain like, what the differences are in case people don't know? Yeah, that? well, literary books, they're the ones that, you know, they can have five pages on how beautiful a leaf is and my books, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, they're the ones that win the Booker Prize and they're the ones that win the Women's Prize, you know, they're, the, they're those books and I don't write. I write the books you take onto the beach and you want to, you whiz through and you're like going, oh my God, I can't believe, <gasps> oh my God, that's, that's happened, you know. So I always read and I've always wanted to write commercial books. Um, I have been fortunate in that I've been able to change the genre, because I started off writing commercial fiction, um, romantic comedies, my um, first two books, and then I made people cry for a bit. And then I came to the Ice Cream Girls where I started, I, you know, I had a whodunit and then there was a, and I got to the end of that and I was like, oh, I like doing that. I'm going to do that some more. And so I've kind of always had the whodunits in the later ones. And some of them got 
pretty hairy. Some of the stuff was pretty sinister that I was writing, and um, I've stopped killing people off as much nowadays. Um, um, so a lot of authors, their publishers want them to keep writing the same book but different, you know, and I've always kind of changed and pivoted and moved on to another thing. And always, not because I've thought, oh, this is what's selling and I need to write that. It's al always been, this is the story I want to tell and this is what, how it's come out. And um, a lot of the time, I, fortunately, I've been ahead of the game. I've, I've changed the type of book I write before other people have. Um, so I've been fortunate that I've had publishers who've, been allow who've allowed me to do that. Because I know a lot of authors, all different types of authors, they're not allowed to do that. They're not, if they do do that, they have to change their name. And I've just kind of stuck to it. So I've been fortunate in, I haven't been pigeonholed. Although the head of the publishing company I'm with now, he used to be my editor on The Ice Cream Girls. He did actually say to me, you've done really well. I was talking about how my career, and he said, you've done really well, but that's probably because you, you know how to stand up for yourself. And I was like, are you saying I'm a pain in the ass, David? <laughs> oh, sorry, I just swore. <laughs> and he was like, no, I'm not saying that at all. Well, he clearly was saying that. But um, yeah, I think being able to stand up for yourself is really important in this industry. And I'm not talking about shouting the odds or, you know, but I've, I've said to people who have just newly published and who are trying to aspire, have your red lines and don't go over them. You know, part of not being pigeonholed is knowing when to stand up for myself. I think it's quite beautiful that you have a clear motivation to write different groups of people to exist as they are, as opposed to having certain stereotypes. Um, and I just wanted to know if you have any other clear motivations when transforming concepts to like actual characters that we can see as like 3D human beings. I just want people to kind of see people how they are. I mean, we're all so different. And it really irks me when you, when you kind of, you watch something or you read something and it's, and it's just got this ridiculous stereotypes in and, and there's no need for it as well. That's the other thing, that there's no need for these stereotypes. There's no need, because no one wants it, do they? We all want interesting stories. We all want people to be, to show people as they are. And it's just really irritating that we have to battle to be seen as not, you know, the femme fatale or, you know, the shouty aggressive one who's the sidekick of the of the main character who gets to have all this range of emotions and, you know, things happen to them. And, you know, things happen to my characters. And I want us to know that we are the main character. I want black women to know that they are the main character. But I also want the white world, the world, the whole world, everyone to see that these people all of us can be main characters. We can all be main characters in our lives and in the world and in the story that we star in. We are the people who we get to have great sex or we get to have five men after us or we get to, you know, solve the mystery. I remember talking to one um, publisher and they were sort of, we were talking about one of my books. I'm trying to be vague because I don't want to <laughs> cause problems, but, um, and they were sort of saying, oh, well, we think that this doesn't sound realistic. I mean, maybe we sh you can make this person solve the crime. And I was thinking, 
yeah, you're saying that because you think that person's white, don't you? They'd completely forgotten the person they were saying should solve the crime was actually black. And then I was like, sat there and listened to them. And I went, you do realize that person's in a coma, don't you? <laughs> and they always went, oh, yeah. I was like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, so we all deserve to be the star in our own stories. And we all deserve to have stories told about us as we are, not how people think we are. Hi. Eva. Hello. Um, you mentioned that you watch a lot of TV. And just thinking back to your previous experience with your book being adapted i'd be curious to know is there anything you've watched where you think i wish the people behind that would adapt one of my books it's kind of complicated because as i said nicholas pinnock and has optioned tell me your secret and that's going through the process at the moment and gabriella union you know the actress she optioned one of my books as well and that's an ongoing thing so um i can't say there's other people i want to because people who are doing it now i, I want them to do it to produce it so yeah hi i just had a question about critique and earlier we were talking about how you're a really good self-editor you're not too precious towards the ideas or the writing that you've done but once you've birthed your baby and it's been you know let out to the masses there's obviously going to be people who review your book and critique it how do you do you take that critique in and if you do how do you use that to influence your next book you know it's really funny because I don't read reviews now if I do read reviews I don't read anything under five stars because you know what life is too short <laughs> I know that sounds awful doesn't it but I'll explain that the reason why because between me having the idea and writing it and it getting to the shelves, a lot of people who are invested in making sure I had tell the best story ever possible, they have read it and they have been honest with me and I trust their opinions. I'm working with them constantly, so I trust their opinions. And if they think something's not up to scratch, they will tell me, okay? You send your book out there and it is like your baby, you know, and that's why, you know, you have to fight for the right cover. You don't want your baby, your beautiful baby to go out in a horrible dress, do you? You want it to be looking perfect, you know, proper perfect and it gets out there. And then people are going to tell you your baby's ugly. And so you don't want to hear that, do you? You don't want to hear that. But I remember because, like I say, the first time round, the Cupid Effect and the Chocolate Run, they didn't trouble anybody. No one really reviewed them. I had a couple of reviews. When it came to my best friend's girl, it sold loads. Um, and then it was on Richard and Judy and it sold, you know, it was stratastrophic. And I was getting all these great reviews and it was like, oh yeah, the best book I've written and it made me cry. Da, da, da. And then a whole load of awful reviews came in. I was reading them going, oh my God. They don't like my book. They don't like me. Oh, my God, this is awful. And then this woman wrote this review that changed everything. And she said, this is one of the worst books I've ever read. And it just made me realize that when I come to write a book, it's going to be really easy if this is the quality of book that's been published. What? And I cried with laughter. I was like, good luck. If you knew what I'd been through to get to this stage, good luck, love. And so after that, I was just like, you know what? Talk amongst yourselves. Say what you like about my book. I, I can't change what, you've, what you think about my book. I can't change how you feel. If that's how you feel, 
But I know, and this is one of the other things when I'm writing, I always put my heart and soul into it. I know when that book hits the shelf, there's nothing I could have done to make it any better. And so if you don't like it, there's nothing I could have done to change that. So maybe in a year's time, I'll look back and I'll go, oh, I could have written that like that and I would have been better. But at that moment, I couldn't have written a better book. And so if you don't like it, it's unfortunate, but I can't do anything about it. And I'm not going to take on board anything that I will take on board valid criticism, like, you know, that character wasn't properly fleshed out, but that comes from my editor or my agent or my or my copy editor. Do you understand what I mean? So that's why I don't read anything else under five stars. Thank you all so much. Can you just give both a round of applause? What an amazing guest Dorothy was. I didn't realise how funny she actually is. But what I really loved about our conversation was her resilience. She spoke so much about how she faced so many setbacks, so much rejection from publishers and agents, but she still decided to keep going. She still decided to write those books that she felt needed to be out there in the world. And I also loved how she spoke about standing up for herself and knowing when to pick your battles and not being someone who was seen as being difficult, but someone who was very sure of themselves and what they wanted to communicate to readers. And I also loved what she spoke about in regards to discipline, because we all have these amazing book ideas and manuscripts we want to write, but we don't actually sit down to write them, which I think was one of my biggest takeaways from Torophy. Thanks so much for listening. Get in touch if you have any thoughts about this episode via our hashtag Black Pros Podcast or via socials at Black Pros Pod. And I'll catch you guys next time.